Hello, this is Christy Bates of Oxford, Mississippi. Welcome to episode 63 of the Deep South Dharma podcast. In a moment, I want to offer a short reflection on what it means to take refuge and devotional practices in general. Before that, I want to just quickly remind you of a couple of offerings upcoming. One is in two weeks, um, or slightly less than two weeks now, actually, I am offering a retreat for white women. It's online via Heartwood Refuge called Meet the Manager. And this is a very um, heart practice based retreat to help develop ourselves in such a way that we are not having to use bullet list articles to tell us how to behave in the world. Um, Not that there's anything wrong with articles if they offer something useful, but we want to be able to listen to people as people and to respond to them as people. And part of what this retreat can help us do is recognize and see through those places where we have been conditioned not to see others different from us as people. So that's what we'll be tackling in a couple of weeks. Um, There'll be a lot of time for um, group practice, but also a lot of time for individual practice so that you're not on your computer the whole time. There'll be uh, time for um, one-on-ones with me, either one-on-ones or small groups. It depends on how large we are. And then um, so that you have a chance to to work through some of the more challenging aspects of this with some degree of privacy if you feel a need for that. But all in all, I believe that you will have an experience during the retreat of, of feeling some shifts in how you see things so that you feel a little more able to recognize your own capacity to make a difference in the lives of those around you, in the larger culture. And then on sort of our day-to-day, week-to-week offerings, I want to remind you that at 11.30 Central on Wednesdays, we have midweek meditation. The link to that can be found at deepsouthdharma.org. If you want to join the Oxford Practice Group, The Oxford Practice Group is currently a worldwide group since we are on Zoom right now. So we meet Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. Central Time and would love to have you join us. For now, let's shift into a little consideration of what it means to take refuge, worship or non-worship. In the West, it is usually the case that when someone comes into Buddhism or has an interest in Buddhism, 
It is because placing refuge elsewhere doesn't work or hasn't worked. So whether we've been placing refuge in trying to satisfy every desire and finding that that doesn't work, that it leads to suffering, whether the road of accomplishment, while we may have racked up a lot of accomplishments, it may not have given us the sense of security, the sense of ease and peace with ourselves that we thought it would. Or maybe even refuge in whatever religious training we've been given so far maybe hasn't worked for us. I want to say parenthetically, that doesn't mean that other religious systems don't offer a full system that we could use but many of us were raised in situations where we had a very incomplete training in whatever religious systems we were exposed to. Um, or maybe it just is the case for us that the language of those systems doesn't resonate for us, doesn't seem to give us the training that we need to meet life on life's terms, to work with our own minds, and train ourselves toward happiness and freedom the way that Buddhism does. So maybe whether consciously or unconsciously, by the time we come toward the Dharma, we are already withdrawing refuge, withdrawing the act of looking for refuge in other things. And very often we are looking for something trustworthy to take refuge in. This concept of taking refuge, I want to mention, I was at a retreat a few years ago, quite a few years ago now, where Ajahn Sachito spoke of taking refuge not as a sort of cowering or hunkering down, but his image of taking refuge was more like having this sense of being lifted up, uh, lifted up above the floods that would otherwise wash us away. Um, in the sense of taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, sort of as this, thinking of it as sort of like this sturdy three-legged stool, <laughs> three-legged platform that could raise us up above the floods, the floods of sensuality, the floods of identity that create so much suffering, the floods of craving. When we talk about taking refuge in the Buddha, much of the language is can be confusing for those of us who grew up um, in a culture, whether, whether our individual household was involved with worship or not. We in the West have grown up, or we at least in the United States, have grown up in a culture of um, understanding that religion was about worshiping um, a deity. And, you know, what's interesting is um, Buddhism, or at least the early Buddhist text, 
they don't deny the existence of deities, um, but but that's not where the refuge is. Because various devas and gods and deities are not are, are seen as part of this repetitive round of birth, death, rebirth that the Buddha was seeking to escape. In fact, one of the in the um, in one of the chant books used by Western sanghas in the Ajahn Chah tradition, there's a line that says, "It is well for us that the Blessed One, having attained liberation, still had compassion for later generations." And there's a part later where it refers to him as a teacher of gods and humans. So, you know, sometimes you hear from people sort of that know about Buddhism in a superficial way will say, well, Buddhism doesn't believe in God. And the fact is, is that that's, that actually was not the case. Um, when people would question the Buddha about a creator God, he didn't claim that there wasn't one. He just said that he had not been able to find the beginning of all this, right? That he had been able to, to see just the beginningless rounds of conditioning and had been able to get free of those. He was not able to see the beginning of them. But what's important for our practice, particularly this practice of taking refuge, is to recognize that we are not talking about worship, at least not in a, in the sense of worshiping a deity. You know, we might, we might call it worship in the sense that we talk about worshiping any other human being that we absolutely love and adore and are maybe somebody that we are eternally grateful toward, you know, all of these sort of superlatives. One of the things that um, a practice of taking refuge does is helps us balance out the sort of the, what can be sort of the dry aspects um, of the practice, you know, the list of tools, all the things to remember, um, this or that teaching, all of it is crucially important. And yet there can be a sense of something missing. So one of the, one of the groupings of all the many groupings of things that the Buddha talked about, one of the groupings the Buddha talked about were the five faculties. Right. And so, so you may find it useful to think of one of those round pedestal tables, just like a dining room table, a breakfast table, round wooden pedestal table where at the bottom of the pedestal, the, there's sort of four legs that go out that balance the table. 
So if we look at that, the pedestal itself, that center column, that would represent mindfulness. So mindfulness being, of all the five faculties, mindfulness being the one that sort of holds all in balance, that at the center of it all. And then one pair of opposites is energy and concentration. So we need a sense of, of energy uh, to feel motivated to live our lives, to feel motivated to practice. But then at the uh, other side of the table is the leg of the concentration, which allows that energy to, um, to settle, to be calm, to be collected and focused in such a way that our energy is not just spewing out wasted. And then the other pair of opposites going on out on either side of our mindfulness column are said to be um, faith and wisdom or devotion and wisdom. And so that when I talk about the devotional aspects of spiritual practice being that which sort of helps balance that that dryness that we could feel if if all we were relying on uh, along that axis was the wisdom this devo devotional practices really add that dimension that supports our spiritual development that supports that whole sturdy round table now, taking refuge may be as simple as, you know, picking up uh, some scripture, a chant from, from a group you go to, a book you read. Um, that this that I just referenced, the chanting book um, from the Western Sangha, that is available for free on, you know, in a PDF file. Um, just all you have to do is Google for these chanting books and you would have something that you could work with. I know in, in our Saturday morning groups, uh, the deep South Dharma group, um, we use uh, something from Jaya, my co-facilitator Jaya Seeley. She's a member as many of you that listen to this podcast know uh, she's a member of the Order of Interbeing of, that was established by Thich Nhat Hanh. And um, she introduced me to the version of, of this that we use on Saturday morning. Um, and we really like it for its accessibility. Um, so for this week, I just want to, I'll just state the lines that refer to the Buddha. In future weeks, I want to discuss taking refuge in the Dharma and the Sangha. Um, but to, to tackle this issue of worship or non-worship, I want to stick with the topic of taking refuge in the Buddha this time. So the lines that I want to pull out for you are, I take refuge in the Buddha, the one who shows me the way in this life. So that's one aspect that... Um, that aspect of here is a human being who 
who attained something that I want and was very generous in teaching how he achieved what I want, that freedom from suffering. Secondly, there's a line, dwelling in the refuge of Buddha. I clearly see the path of light and beauty in this world. So again, that that brings for me that sense of uh, the the sort of being uplifted to be able to uh, to see what you need to see to navigate. And then taking refuge in the Buddha in myself, it says, I aspire to help all people recognize their own awakening nature, realizing the mind of love. And so this is where um, sometimes people who are frightened by the idea of offering chanting or offering praise to, um, to the Buddha, this aspect of recognizing, oh, part of what we are taking refuge in, an aspect of what we're taking refuge in, is the understanding that this person who woke up was human, and I too am human, and I too therefore have this capacity to awaken. Now there is the aspect that can be really useful of, of having an understanding of this very human person who did the work to clarify his own motives, to clarify what was wise or unwise, wholesome or unwholesome. There is something about that that I think it is important to make it a little personal or a lot personal. And that is, again and again, we can see people's hunger, our own hunger and other people's hunger to find someone trustworthy. You know, just that hunger, just to find somebody that can be believed, um, that can be trusted. Um, that sense of wanting to be able to, um, to rest in knowing here is a trustworthy person. Now that doesn't mean that, um, you know, one of the encouragements to put it mildly, one of the encouragements in Buddhism is to work towards your own knowing, right? It's not that, oh, I'm placing, you know, I'm, I'm by taking refuge in the Buddha, I, I place any hope that I have of, of my own knowing, you know, onto the fact that, that he woke up. That's not it. It's that he woke up and I can trust from looking at his life and how he behaved for 45 years after waking up, that the awakening was real, that it led to a compassion and generosity in serving others that makes him absolutely trustworthy and reliable. And so, and so, a practice that I, it's relatively new for me, but one that I find really moving is uh, 
Um, meditating, and I meditate with my eyes closed. That, that's not the only way, obviously. Different traditions, different people do it differently. But I meditate with my eyes closed to sort of cut out all the other um, excess sensory input. But I do sort of allow myself to have a sense that the Buddha is sitting with me. And, you know, I think for me, that practice, um, I mean, it's a, you know, obviously a very ancient practice, but it really harkens back for me, you know, when I was, I guess when I was about in the eighth grade and started babysitting younger siblings and um, neighbors and a lot, one of the things when I wanted to be sure that I kept my own behavior verbal and otherwise sort of between the ditches in, in relating to them, one of the things that I would do is <laughs> I would pretend that some boy I had a crush on was sitting on the couch, right? So that if I was in the kitchen or the living room with my brother and sister, um, sometimes I found myself able to behave in a way that I could be proud of in dealing with them. Not always, to be sure. But sometimes I was able to do that by sort of pretending to myself that this person was sitting there watching me. And so this, it, it, with this practice of sitting with the Buddha, it's not that I'm pretending to myself that I'm sitting with the Buddha. I allow myself to have the sense that this awakened mind is present with me right now. I don't pretend to myself that I possess that mind um, or anything of the sort. But the idea that here's me with my cloudy mind and, and uh, heart with all its mixed motives, as I'm working toward awakening, I am sitting in the presence in the very same moment, sitting in the presence of an awakened mind that is generous, that is compassionate, and that is willing to show me the way and offer support. And I find that to be very useful in directing my devotional energy appropriately. <clears throat> so that um, because, you know, some, I think all people are devotional by nature. I think that's why the, that, that aspect of faith or devo devotion is one of the five spiritual fact faculties. I think some of us who are very devotional in nature really need the wisdom. I certainly have needed the wisdom on that other end of that axis to direct that devotion appropriately. And the Buddha who is, who purified his own thinking, his own behavior, um, his motives, his compassion in such a way that is trustworthy that is a place that I can feel good about placing my devotion. 
And that devotional energy then sort of has a nice feedback loop somehow, not in the sense of devotion toward myself, that's not what I mean, but in directing devotion toward the Buddha, and as we'll talk about later, toward the Dharma and the Sangha, there somehow there is this feedback loop of feeling a sense of self-respect. Whereas, you know, when we misplace our devotional energy, we often, I often, end up feeling less than or even ashamed or confused or disappointed, right, in the results of that. But this is the one place, right, spiritual practice and objects uh, and beings and principles, principles that are worthy of devotion are a direction that we can point our devotion and the feedback from that is one of uplifting and self-respect, which to me is part of what gives us that natural affirmation that we're pointing it in the right direction. So just like where all this started a few minutes ago with that recognition of, okay, I need to withdraw my devotion to whatever I've been devoting myself to that is not bringing satisfaction and maybe bringing suffering. And I need to place this devotion in a direction that's more useful. And in this case, we're talking about placing it with the Buddha. The last thing I'll say about this is this doesn't mean, you know, we may, we may have those, especially those of us with lots of devotional energy. It may be that we have some really valuable things that we're devoted to, but it is about sort of an order of operations in a sense of where do we place that energy and in what order to what priority, right? And so, you know, if we send all of that devotional energy into our personal relationships, people are going to feel smothered or overbearing. Whereas if we put that devotional energy into our spiritual practice, and then we have this sort of um, feedback loop from that, that is very, um, supportive, satisfying, that sort of my cup runneth over sort of feeling. Then when we take our devotional energy toward others in our lives, they're not feeling smothered. They're just enjoying sort of the warmth of our cup that's flowing over. But they have a sense that they're dealing with somebody with a full cup. So that's just one example of how prioritizing our spiritual practice can help other things fall into place. The Buddha, absolutely pure with ocean-like compassion, possessing the clear side of wisdom, destroyer of worldly self-corruption, 
devotedly indeed that Buddha I revere. And another section, one who knows things as they are has come into this world and he is an arahant, a fully awakened being, purifying the way leading out of delusion, calming and directing to perfect peace, leading to enlightenment. This way he has made known. Let's just give ourselves a minute to let that settle. A reminder and an expression of gratitude. The Deep South Dharma podcast is supported not by any commercial endeavors, but by the generosity of some of its listeners. People are generous in listening to the podcast, in sharing it with friends, in offering me feedback or topics that you would like to have discussed or your questions. And people also have been supporting us through anchor.fm which allows you to do that at the level of 99 cents a month or $4.99 a month or $9.99 a month. So if that's something that you would like to participate in, go to anchor.fm slash deepsouthdharma slash support. You'll be supporting and inspiring me and also allowing me to devote a little more time to the development of the podcast. And in general, I just want to thank you for your practice, which is good for you, for the world, and leads to peace. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Deep South Dharma Podcast. We hope you'll feel welcome to share this with anyone you think would find it useful. And as always... Feel free to message us your feedback, questions, or topics of interest. Until we meet again, take good care of this body, mind, and heart.